Welcome to this week's Eccentric Minute, brought to you by Eccentric. In this week's Eccentric Minute, we'll discuss another one of our foundational exercises, and that is the K-Pulley Leg Drive. To execute this, you're going to need to set some sort of support right out in front of you where you're going to be about under your shoulders and allowing your body to extend out at a 45 degree angle. From here, you're going to let your hips sink straight back towards the K-Pulley, and I want you to push as hard as you can with your feet to drive your shoulders up and out at a 45 degree angle by extending your hip, knees, and ankles. This is a great exercise to start training your athletes to be up off their heels and to drive through the ball of their feet and their big toe as we move forward in training. Give this one a shot, guys. I think this is one that you're going to love and your athletes are really going to enjoy. I really hope you enjoyed this week's Eccentric Minute. Make sure you check them out at eccentric.com to find out everything you need about the K-Box and the K-Pulley. Before we get to the show, let's play a little game of name association. When I say the names Hank Krasenhoff, Dr. Natalia Verkashensky, Brett Bartholomew, Dr. Charlie Weingroff, Dr. Brian Mann, and Dr. Fergus Connolly, what do you think? Well, if the answer to that was they each have multiple lectures in the Strength Coach Network, then you would be right. On top of these sensational lectures from these six world leaders, we have well over 100 additional lectures from some of the top practitioners in the world, along with an extremely active forum where there's coaches from all over the world discussing everything in the strength and conditioning world. So hop on over to strengthcoachnetwork.com slash CVASPS, that's strengthcoachnetwork.com slash CVASPS, to dive into all that great content today and get your 48-hour trial for only a dollar. I look forward to seeing you in the Strength Coach Network. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Today, guys, I have the absolute pleasure of sitting down and talking about speed and force development with Jake Schuster. After a real quick intro, Jake dives right into some of the best practice that he has seen to actually make people faster, and this includes him discussing the roles of both motor control, which has really become kind of a sexy go-to topic now, and affecting the force velocity profile of the athletes and how these really work together to help your athletes get faster. Uh, we then discuss, you know, actually the role of this force velocity profile and how different guidelines for evaluating this area uh, are really important. And this includes him sharing with us some mistakes that he made and how we can be better to avoid those moving forward in these evaluations. You know, then we get into you know, some stuff that Jake has observed with staffs and where he has seen staffs in his travels that have been the most successful have some common factors and some commonalities between them. You know, and then, then we finish off, guys, with a little self-reflection, kind of playing the game if I knew then what I know now. I'm uh, talking about how we could have done things better in the past and some things that we've looked at and been like, man, if I only or if I did this different. And this is really, really an awesome talk, guys. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Let's get right to it. Jake, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Thanks, Coach. It's great to be here. Yeah, man. Stoked to have you on. We've been uh, rapping a bit here off camera, but let's, let's let everybody know, like, you know, who is Jake? Where are you at right now and uh, what you getting into? Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm calling you from the Boston area, visiting some family up here. Um, I was born in this area and went to undergraduate in Maryland, a tiny little school so that I could play two sports there, wrestling and lacrosse. Um, got sick of, of the mid-Atlantic, uh, your, your area, <laughs> quickly enough that I actually 
Um, I caught some wanderlust and and went to to Amsterdam to finish off my undergraduate for a specific program there, um, where I was fortunate to intern with the Dutch Olympic Federation and uh, work with some rugby teams over there, and ended up spending the next four years in Europe, including my master's at Loughborough University in the UK, studying physiology and nutrition. Um, and then I was extremely fortunate to get a PhD scholarship to go over to New Zealand, where I worked with the New Zealand women's rugby sevens team and men's rugby sevens teams in the build up to Rio. Um, unfortunately, everyone got moved on after that games, though um, I got to complete a, a training intervention in the build up to that, doing some research on force velocity profiling, which I guess we'll get into a little bit. Um, and then I went back to the States for a couple of years working for USA Field Hockey and for Florida State University. And I've spent the last year working for Vault Performance as their senior sports scientist, getting to fly around and, and talk to different clients and figure out and share best practice. Yeah. So speaking of all that, you know, coming from Florida State where your primary sure. work was with track and field and coming from New Zealand, you were looking at how we can make athletes faster. So let's talk about kind of what's turned into the, the, the white elephant, right? Something people are talking about all over the place. You know, a good friend of ours is throwing things all over social media about it and such, you know? Sure. Let's talk about how we get people faster. Yeah. Um, my, my first and foremost boring answer is, is running really fast as often as possible is, uh, is the number one way to improve speed and improve robustness against injury through running. And that does not mean high volume stuff. Um, <clears throat> hopefully anyone not living under a rock agrees that um, high volume running, it, you know, becomes conditioning, right? So, so intensity, excuse me, <clears throat> intensity is, is the name of the game um, with running, with running development. But uh, maximum velocity exposure is something I see everywhere I travel, whether it's AFL, rugby, baseball, what have you, that athletes need to be exposed to their maximum velocities. Um, and that doesn't mean a few times in preseason. That doesn't mean um, quarterly in season. It means like once every five days. And the other point, which I've made on, on other podcasts is um, 90% is not 100%. 80% definitely is not 100%. Um, it's something I've, I've talked uh, with even folks like Dave Opar about is, is the any way you look at it, um, the stimulus is very different the further you move away from 100% velocity. So exposing athletes to their true maximum speed running uh, is extremely important. Um, and I think it's it's the best neuromuscular stimulus that we can, we can really find. So it's a pretty good training tool anyways. So that's my number one. Um, the other things that we see are, I think, kind of these, these conflicting elements of, of developing biomotor or um, like muscular physiology concepts around whether it's, you know, affecting the force velocity profile, whether it's morphological changes through eccentric training um, or even even developing any other kind of push qualities. And then on the other end, the motor control, right, the skill acquisition, the aqua bags, anything in, in Franz Bosch's direction. And I'm happy to say that you need both. And there's tons from both that works. Um, I still think that running really fast and then having a coach give you feedback on that running is the best training tool that we have. Um, but you need to improve your coordination. Like I think there's lots of athletes that are super strong and have all the, all the under the hood tools to be really fast, but they're not really fast because they're not coordinated and they need to work on that. And there's also lots of athletes that 
are very coordinated. And, you know, you might say that they're in air quotes, great athletes, but they don't have the force production that they need. Um, and they need to spend more time in the gym and more time doing specific stuff in that area. Um, so I think, I think you just have to look at each athlete and give them what they need. Imagine that the answer in that, at the end of all of it is it depends on the individual. Yeah. Kind of annoying, but it's the reality. And, and look, many coaches have huge amounts of athletes that they have to try and affect, you know, with that advice. And that's, that's frustrating, but that's not to say that you can't boil it down to a half dozen maximum, hopefully two or three great cues that athletes should focus on while doing a running drill and then have interns or assistants or just run up and down the field giving extra cues to the athletes who don't pick it up well. Like you can still affect a big group. Yeah, no doubt about it. And you touched upon another pretty hot, sexy topic there now twice in the initial part of, of talking about this. And that is the force velocity curve, the force velocity profiling. I think that the first thing that most people need to understand is how much does it actually matter? <laughs> well, I'll have to be careful here. Look, I think it is a very, very useful and very valuable concept that can be applied to great effect. And I, I, I've applied it to great effect. I'm, I've published on it. It's also just a tool. I think it's it's not different from any any other list of things that we've had in our field that people want to wave it around and tweet about it and say, oh, I'm, I'm doing this. So that means that I'm a great coach and my program's awesome and complex. And how about the other 99 things you should be doing first? And I mean, if we want to individualize programs around running, it's a great thing to add. If we want to um, help an athlete get to the next level when they're already very fast. It's a great evaluation and monitoring tool. Um, but again, it's just one, one piece of the puzzle. And I think, I think there's other boxes that you should be ticking first. Um, that's not to say stay away from it, but you know, are you getting, are you getting that max velocity stimulus? Are you getting an eccentric stimulus? Are you cueing the athlete? Are you actually watching them run and then giving them cues so that they can improve their running technique? Um, do they need the biomotor abilities to underpin that technique? Absolutely. Um, I think that the people on, on Twitter who say that running technique is the be all end all, they've either never been inside of a weight room or they're trying to sell a product um, because technique matters a lot, but so does the ability to hit the ground really hard. Of course. So again, the answer is somewhere in the middle. So yeah, you got me ranting. No, I love it. So let's talk about <laughs> that middle though, right? Like when we're looking at things, how have you had success with building that in and building up to that identification process with the with force velocity profiling with your athletes? Now, that's a really good question because I think I think one mistake that we often make and, and oftentimes it's an environmental pressure is we'll do a, a big profiling process when the athletes aren't really ready for it. So you'll get some pretty messy data sets if you just do a massive testing battery when athletes are pretty much just off the sofa. Um, and that's not to say that we always have the luxury of waiting a month, but I think that, you know, you can, you can put athletes through, I don't know, two weeks of building up, uh, into and through max velocity exposure. You can have two weeks of good cueing on running technique. You can have two weeks of making sure people get, um, acclimated to a training camp or something like that before you run a bunch of tests. 
Um, we made that mistake. Well, I'm, I made that mistake in New Zealand where we profiled athletes way early in preseason. And we actually had a forward who looked like she was velocity deficient. And I, I actually kind of bandied that about as a really interesting result until we retested her after Christmas and saw, oh, actually, like she was just running really slow that day. She's exactly what we thought she was, you know, <laughs> and then we changed her training program back and she went back to being really good. Um, and so I, I think you have to be careful with that. Awesome. Awesome. So then now let's kind of take this next step forward since you've been able to fly around the country and talk with bunches and bunches of coaches. What are some best practices that you've noticed? Like what are some things that Jake has seen and been able to take a step back and be like, that's a great plug and play, or I like this, or I like that, or these are some things that we could all be doing better as a whole. Mm -hmm. Couple of things. Um, I think the first thing is clear roles. So we can talk all day about silos and, and collaboration and things like that. And I think that's been said and done, but I think um, the most successful teams, the most coherent performance and medicine staffs that I observe, everybody knows what they're there for and what they're being counted on for and what their superpower is and what their blind spots are. Um, and so no one's trying to do anything that they're not really good at and no one has an ego about someone else doing something that they're good at. So that's, that's the first thing that I see, um, around like what we see on the field. I think making more use of the warmup is important. Now I agree with some people who think that warmups are a little bit overrated is a harsh word, but, um, overdone maybe. Uh, however, assuming that we are going to have a time out there with our athletes, getting them prepared for their session. I think we need to make better use of that time. Now, everyone wants to hear a story of what the boys were up to last night or who's seen this movie lately. And, and that's a good relationship building opportunity with our athletes, but we also need to use our eyes and ears and see who's quiet or who's complaining, um, who's moving poorly. And, and we really need to observe from there that, um, I think Dan Paff says it well that watching an athlete move is, is the best monitoring tool that we have. And we should do a lot of objective monitoring, but we also should use our eyes because this is a people business. So we should use what we have there. Um, and then the only other thing that I'd say that I see teams do really well is, you know, I'll say it 20 times, but it's, it's that max velocity exposure and it's having really clean systems and really clean checks and balances set up in whatever spreadsheets you're using or whatever to say, okay, look, this guy's gone, you know, eight days without hitting his top speed. Let's take him on a backfield and, and, and run between cones and just absolutely making sure of that. that not, not ever, um, not ever conceding to environmental pressures or time constraints or an athlete who might not be that into it. Just always making sure that these athletes are getting what they need with regard to that high velocity. So let's talk about that checks and balances system then, because I think that that's one, especially in American sport that can get a bit dicey. So what are some ways that we can sit here and A, be better for the, the men and the women we get to coach and implement this, but B, make sure that people understand that it's more than just making sure they're fast. Yeah. Can you expand on that a little bit? Well, I mean, just the injury reduction aspect of it, if that's even a real thing. Right? Oh, okay. Like, so, what, so what elements around running help reduce injuries, yeah. you're saying? Yeah. 
Um, I mean, the the eccentric topic has has been beaten to death. I, I don't I hope that that doesn't need any more talking about. But athletes, right, we want long fascicles. And the way to do that is through eccentric overload, um, especially that, um, you know, near max voluntary contraction when we're trying to prevent, right, some kind of yielding effect. Um, so that's a huge one. And I think I think it's actually everything away from training. So it's the neuromuscular status, which we can observe with things like force plates. It's, you know, how has the athlete slept? What's their stress level? We, you know, we're still still starting to put it through the publishing process. But from our data at Florida State, the only thing that that was noticeable uh, in our monitoring system in relation to injuries was stress. So my survey that I set up for the athletes every morning, um, you know, and asked that, how do you feel today? How well did you sleep? How ready do you, um, how ready are you to perform today? And how much stress do you have in your life? And we said in, in parentheses in the app, um, I think social, uh, social lifestyle academic. So it could be any kind of stress. And the athletes were always stressed out when they got injured. So that tells us something. Um, and again, that's something that the human element should have a role to play, right? Can we talk to the athletes? Can we find out what's going on in their lives? But when it comes to air quotes, injury prevention, I think it's not about sitting back and, and looking at workload balance. That has That's one piece of the puzzle, but what else is happening in the athlete's world? No, I couldn't agree more. And I think that all too often we sit here and we, we can talk about acute to chronic and all that another day, whether that is what it's supposed to be or not. But, you know, we look at those loads and we think that like these spikes are this, that, and third, but... I don't think that, you know, they had a conversation with Sam Gardner in the car mm. and theirs was always day three. Like the problem wasn't the first day of stress or the second day of stress or the, you know, the first hard, second hard workout. It was the third one. And it's like, well, yeah, yeah cause it's the accumulation. It's not just that all of a sudden I'm having a bad day and I'm just, you know, something's going to go. Sure. It's like how this wears on these kids that is so underrated that people don't understand that taking that step back literally could save them. I agree. And I think that illustrates the importance of examining an athlete's status and not using only predictive models to, to try and guess if an athlete is in the red, the red zone, right? It's, we have to say, okay, how did they respond, right? If we're asking, what did, the, what did the athlete do? How much did they do? How does that deviate or not from normal? We have to ask the second question: How did that? How did that athlete respond to the load? What's their status right now? Um, and I mean, that's one reason that I love force plates. But you know, to your point, to Tim Gabbett's credit, he always says, like, you know, an athlete who's who's trained their whole life for their first NFL game, that first game isn't going to hurt them. It's the one on short rest right after that that's that might break them. And and I think we see that a lot. And I think that's why, again, like you might not. You might not have a predictive model that's going to pick that up, and I think I think the field will get towards that soon as we move towards and even past machine learning. But if you can look at each day how the athlete has responded to their recent load, right? Because tests like that, they don't care if it's sleep, if it's stress, if it's accumulated running load. That's just the, the athlete's status is the athlete's status. Yeah. Well, and then let's talk about how they're adapting and their outputs under those training loads. You know, you have spent some time running around there with a, with a couple of force plates, talking with a bunch of meatheads that are typically in basements. 
What are some things that you've noticed with those things? What are some things that we should be looking at? And what are some things maybe that you would say are possibly overrated when it comes to looking at certain aspects? I just lost the, the last bit. You said what oh, are some things that you would say are? Are maybe overrated. Like I think that there are some measurements that people sure. get really excited about that yeah. might not quite have the teeth that people think. Yeah. Oh, that's a fun one. Look, jump height. Okay. Jump height is great to see if you're a better athlete than me. Um, you know, very, very um, vaguely, like one way of showing that you might be a better athlete than me. It's a great way to look at long-term athletic development. So what's your jump height now versus two years ago? But within, within a scope of, I would say, a year or less, I almost wouldn't look at it. The only way that I would look at it is if three other things are red flagging and I want to see if your overall jump performance is down. But even then, I'd probably still be looking at um, RSI, reactive strength index, or flight time contraction time, um, or jump height contraction time as a ratio. <clears throat> Unfortunately, almost every study on, on jumping on force plates, especially counter-movement jumps, looks at jump height either exclusively or jump height and then things like peak power in the background. Um, and that's that's a bummer. And we'll be putting out a lot of papers in the next couple of years. Folks like Dr. Cohen will be putting out a lot of papers in the next few years on a whole host of other variables. But let's talk about some of those. So for me, eccentric duration um, in the counter movement jump would be and has been my go-to for fatigue. I'm always going to look at, at something like RSI as a jump output or uh, air quotes jump performance metric because that's looking at both jump strategy and jump output. So, right, it's telling us what, what went into that jump height. So how fast was the jump as well as how high was the jump. But beyond that, we can have athletes and, and you'll see it all over the place once you start looking that they'll be very fatigued and they will go and jump their normal jump height easily because they use a different strategy and they're athletes so they know how to get up there but they'll take way longer to do it so you know we look at athletes and they get onto the platform and they would take a long time to go down and then they'd fire right up and they'd get their normal jump height or within a normal range and if you didn't know any better you'd say okay carry on go train as normal go play as normal but that that eccentric duration right so the length of time it takes them to basically get to the bottom and then start moving up that's very telling on the flip side of that same coin, we were trying to publish now some data from the track season where when we peaked the athletes for pinnacle events, um, their eccentric durations were down, down, down. Um, so we actually had, so every, every PB that occurred at a pinnacle event, so ACC's NCAA regional NCAA finals had an eccentric duration of under 400 milliseconds um, on all of our athletes from sprinters to, jump, uh, sprinters to jumpers to throwers. So most of them were even less than that, something like you know, 350 um, milliseconds, but we found that, that they could jump quickly when they were fresh. So I really like that metric for fatigue. Um, when you're looking at other performance metrics, I mean, things like impulse are great, again, for long-term athletic development, for learning an athlete's capacity, but there's more jump strategy variables that you can look at, like the rate of force development in the eccentric phase, right? So how how fast can you get out of the hole or, or how quickly can you push when you're trying to reverse direction, right? When you're going down and you want to be going up, things like that. And then really accelerative metrics on the, in the concentric phase, like rate of power development. So the slope of that power curve, how, how fast are we really getting towards takeoff? What's the rate of increase? 
I love it, man, because you're now you're looking at a vast array of things, and then of course you can look at most of those right to left as well. Absolutely, yeah. Um, that that eccentric rate of force development uh, asymmetry is a really fun one. People talk about ACL risk or ACL profiling, and you have to be careful saying this is that. But if you wanted to examine an athlete's um, proclivity towards a knee injury or just any kind of lower body injury, really, because it could be showing anything. That's a good one because, right, once you once you unload, once you deload, then you're pushing into the plates. If you're pushing hard off of one limb, that's pretty important information. And then on the flip side, once you have jumped, because some athletes can compensate really well on the jump, but then you're up in the air and you got to land somehow. And a lot of times athletes will compensate without realizing it and they'll just land heavily on one side. We've had times that their jump, everything looked really clean and normal, but the peak landing force asymmetry was big. And you say, hey, what's going on? And I say, well, I, you know, I rolled an ankle playing basketball over the weekend, but I feel fine. It's like, well, you don't feel fine if you're not trusting yourself to land on that limb. So that, that information is very revealing. Well, and huge in return to play, too. It's, that's a bunch of the – those last two are the numbers that uh, – it's Jordan up in Canada, right, that he looks at and is seeing that those are the two-year windows, right, is that eccentric RFD with the landing. Yeah, yeah, they, they can both um, show residual information long after an injury. So it could take a long, long time to come back all the way. But it's also often just the last thing that will come back in rehab. So, yeah, like you said, you, you can rehab an ACL, for example, all the way back. Um, and, they, and they check off every test. But it's worthwhile doing those jumps because that landing force might not show, right? You can put, in, put an athlete on a table, do all the tests. You can have them run certain drills, pass those tests. But if if they can't land from a jump without compensating, they, depending on their sport, probably shouldn't be back out there. So now let's let's play a little self-reflection since you've been on the road for a year, kind of you know teaching, but in any situation where you're teaching, you're learning. Absolutely. What is one thing that if you could get in a DeLorean and go 88 miles an hour, you would go back to your time at Florida State and make changes with that you've learned while you've been teaching coaches around the world. Yeah. With the training programs. Yeah. Good question. Um, I would say I'd probably pay a little bit more attention to the key lifts that, I mean, they were, they were doing them. Every athlete was doing them. Um, and every athlete got stronger with them. But I think, investigating a little bit more which ones were useful and which ones was just letting kids get excited about you know putting more more plates on the bar um that you can fall into that into that fallacy and build you know build off the vibe build off the culture that people are getting excited about that I'm, i mean we had so many drills and so many elements that were not that so i don't think that they were missing significant things from the program but sometimes you know if an athlete was really excited about adding more to their clean or adding more to their squat. I would, I would let that continue. Whereas I think I've, I've observed many great programs that, um, that they have a cutoff that they have. A, okay. You're strong enough. Now do something else cut off that I would have liked to have implemented. Sal Alossi, when he was at UCLA had a, had a great system for that. Once, once their guys could squat a certain amount relative to body weight, they would just only I think maintain their squats like you know a certain at certain certain intervals and Olympic lifts during that period instead, and I really like that. Yeah, that's interesting because I think that all too often we like to talk about it, but we don't necessarily act upon that idea. 
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to program. And I mean, that's that's really another, you know, check and balance is where where are we deciding that an athlete can pivot their own programming? Well, and I think, too, with that, like, what's the athlete's involvement in that pivot, I think, is important, too, because when you have checked that box and you're deciding that you're going to, I don't know if exclusively is the right term, but, like, exclusively move them in a different direction, you know, how then are you identifying with this athlete what's necessarily important? Yeah, it's, it's tricky for sure. And I think a lot of it depends on when you're having those conversations. If it's in the gym, it might go in a different direction than if it happens outside of the gym or with them, with their coach present or talk to their coach, and then see if it, the athlete has a different opinion. I mean, we had a Jamaican female sprinter who did not love lifting. And, and that's often part of their, their culture that they come from. And it was pretty much, hey, what do you feel like doing today each time she'd come in? And, and oftentimes, you know, which is very common amongst athletes, right? It would be one answer when they walked in the door, then they'd see their buddies lifting and they would get into something else and that'd be great. And we would end up doing 90% of the intended program anyways. Um, but if this athlete came in and she wanted to have you clean, like that's a stimulus that depending on a variety of factors, we might not get for a week or another couple of weeks. So I'm going to let it happen on that day. And that you know, some people might hear that story and think I'm too loosey-goosey without how I'd run a weight room, but that's that's one athlete. I wouldn't necessarily do that with every athlete, not even close. But that's that's a personality type. Um, that's a veteran athlete who knows her body, et cetera. Um, in other cases, it might be talk to the coach, find out what the coach thinks that athlete needs, and then kind of, you know, kind of not force it upon the athlete, but do what it takes to get the athlete to buy into that concept, knowing that they'll grow into it. Right. Yeah, and then sometimes meeting in the middle with the two of them is going to exactly. get you to go the furthest. Always. Especially, too, with today's athlete. I think that the more that they believe that they're determining what they're doing, the more they're going to just dive in head first. Yeah, and I think that's um, – and people talk about this. That's an important <clears throat> part of the coach's skill set is um, the athlete says that that they want to do A and you know that you want to achieve C. So, you you know, you dress A up as C or vice versa, right? You know, you, you, you can achieve things many different ways and you have to be able to, to do that. No doubt about it. So, Jake, let me get you out of here on this, man. So where can we find out more about you? Where can we see what you're, what you're doing? Where can we learn more about what you're getting into? Sure. Probably Twitter and Instagram at the moment. I've faded much of my online presence, but um, um, my favorite film of all time is Cool Hand Luke with Paul Newman because he's my hero. So uh, back in the days when people made screen names with funny names, um, I made mine. So it's Cool Hand Jake GS for Jake George Schuster on Twitter and Instagram. Awesome, brother. Truly appreciate your time, Jake. This is great stuff. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jay. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. We'll be in touch real soon. And a huge thanks to Jake Schuster for spending the time with us today. Guys, just some open, honest, candid sharing, some things that can really let you as a practitioner have some self-reflection and take a step back and look at some things. And, you know, just the ideas of when we evaluate and the ideas of where these check boxes may be for when we're looking at lifts and 
really designing just some sort of protocol for what strong is enough, uh, I think is absolute gold. So Jake, can't thank you enough for all you're doing, brother. Can't thank you enough for your time and, and your candidness with us today. This was absolutely sensational. And guys, as always, if you did enjoy the talk, please share it through the social media outlet of your choice, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever it may be. As always, we're just trying to get the best information out there to all the great coaches that we can. And as always, guys, thank you for everything that you do for us here at Central Virginia Sport Performance. We will be back next week with another awesome guest. We will see you then.